0: the busy uh, now he's gonna move like right along the mcgregor that's his whole life. You know. so i think of genre writers who write an episode of the x-files <laughs> william gibson's kill switch is a much better episode than Chinga in that it feels like an actual episode of the x-files but there's still something about it that feels vaguely unsatisfying in the kind of way that it feels like it could have been written for anything. Yeah,
1: I get the sense that this is probably a short story or something that he never really finished and then suddenly – and X-Files, this will be fine. Yeah, that this is – there is, maybe a bit more because at least – this ties very into The Lone Gunman in this. They are, I think, what elevates this episode. This episode without The Lone Gunman would not be very good. I think that's part of why Chinga doesn't really work, because it doesn't have as much of a connection. This is at least within the show's wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Chinga definitely felt a little a little outside of the wheelhouse of the X-Files, The the evil possessed doll, which an explanation is never really given always felt a little strange for the show as we talked about last week I think Kill Switch works more you, you've got this idea of Ascension AI and and, and which has already been something that the yeah. show has been kind of grappling with all the way back from the first season with like Ghost in the Machine for instance which was which actually in retrospect kind of felt like a test drive for this yeah. episode this and ep- then of course yeah. like The X-Files in season one is this scrappy genre show who's fighting to stay on the air and by season five, they're actually getting you know William Gibson to write basically Ghost in the Machine again. It, it's it's a it I mean if nothing else, those two episodes will show you yeah, how yeah, far yeah. the X Files has come. But it's I mean the Lone Gunmen are the best part of the episode. I think that I
1: mean I I don't really like William Gibson. I I I've never read Neuromancer, so I've read some of his later stuff, um, and I I know Neuromancer is one of those holes in my sci-fi reading, but uh, this episode does benefit from a facet of his style, which is that William Gibson is not really a computer geek. He, as a writer, is not interested in actual technology. I mean, Neuromancer was written before he even owned a computer. This is his writing is more about the atmosphere of computers and the feel of technology and the Zeitgeist and the and the anxieties that we have around it. And in a way Neuromancer doesn't really feel dated because it's not really about anything real. It's just more about a style of cool. And certainly this is a certainly kill switch is very much it's obvious this came out in 1998 or whenever because of the fashion of the styles of the way that they are talking about computers but i do think certain of the of the anxieties in this episode are still a little bit universal this is not that different from the worries that we may have about self-driving cars for example
0: self-driving cars, I think bots, I think that, you know, Twitter bots, yeah. Facebook bots, whatever, right? I mean, we we live in an age right now where it is, you know, increasingly possible that and not just some sort of crank conspiracy theory that Russian bots learned how to emulate Americans weak points and swing an election to Donald Trump. So we kind of live in a world that William Gibson didn't yeah. create, but 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 kind of foresaw. And I i mean, I read Neuromancer. I honestly don't really remember it, which I don't know is, is my fault or the novel's fault, frankly. Um, we all have those novels that we read when we're younger yeah. and go back to and 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 find wonderful things in it. But I don't remember it, frankly, and I don't remember if it's any good or not. Uh, William Gibson has never really been a writer that interests me very much. I'm not super interested. I've always kind of found him, and this again is a hole in my knowledge more than a criticism of William Gibson. That I'm not super interested in that sort of like cyberpunk cool aesthetic. Yeah, uh, which is I mean, I played I played Deus Ex like all computer game nerds in you know the the late 80s and early 2000s but and you love you know, blade aside... runner
1: which we covered on our patron special for February
0: I believe so or maybe it was January I yeah, at this point I'm... it all blends together uh,
1: uh and in, i mean blade runner and neuromancer are considered two of the very foundational texts for cyberpunk as an aesthetic but i think i mean blade runner it is easier to see all of that stuff I, do, I I get the sense they are very similar in the way they approach it. Except you're more of a film guy than you are a fiction literature guy. I think. And yeah,
0: I I, I think that's a fair read on the situation. And. I mean, this is a good episode. Like, I I think that even in terms, I mean, I I kind of compare it to to Stephen King's episode Jenga only because it comes right yeah. after it. It's it's obviously you know a, a good comparison because we're talking about two genre fiction writers that are writing episodes of the X Files, and and kind of the ways in which William Gibson, you know, I, I don't know how hard he worked on this episode. I, I believe that this had only been one of the first things he wrote for the screen he he shows a really good understanding of how to construct an episode of television that I don't yeah. think Stephen King really had uh which is weird cuz as you mentioned last week Stephen King actually is a very visual writer but for some reason he just can't translate that into the screen in a screenplay whereas what you know kill switch starts out with this I mean, frankly, breathtaking opening yeah. where it's just this like montage cut together of the computer calling these various, you know, criminal enterprises and and bringing them to this uh, diner to to assassinate the guy who's trying to kill it, and it's very very well done. It's very evocative. And it it shows a lot of visual panache. Now, how much of that was William Gibson, and how much of that was the director and the cinematographer and all that yeah. kind of stuff? You know, I mean, at least it started somewhere. So, I think that that in terms of the visual style of it, it's it's interesting. But yeah, there, um, there are there are still some weird there are still some weirdnesses about this episode that that of course we'll talk about.
1: Yeah, visually in general, this is a very striking episode. Um, the scenes inside the trailer with all of these lights and wires and stuff. Look really cool, look really eerie, look very unwelcoming. I mean, th- th- that sequence reminds me very much of, for example, Tombs' Lair, at which. As we all know, I don't really like Tombs as a villain, but I thought his lair was really creepy. This is creepy. And, and I idiot. and
0: I will say, not not to cut you off, but but you do mention him a lot. Even I know. you don't like Tombs, he is kind of a very, very striking and memorable moment in the show.
1: I think it's funny because we talk about Tombs a lot. We also talk about El Mundo Jira a lot. It doesn't necessarily... <laughs> true. I, I, it doesn't necessarily mean a compliment, but it is true. They are both Significant X Files episodes, even if I don't think they're good ones.
0: That is fair. I I, I will take your point.
1: uh but yeah, the it, 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 and the seek the hospital sequences in the VR world were very well done. See, I my disappointment with this episode. I thought there was more VR stuff. Like I had thought, the episode was about a VR killer. Somehow, uh, rather than an AI killer. And I was really looking forward to Mulder and Scully's adventures in VR. I did think that the uh, hospital sequences were some of the creepiest bits of this episode, and I think it would be cool to see a full episode of that, but I digress.
0: Well, I will say, and and I will be deliberately vague here, but uh, this episode had a, a, a co-writer. Uh, I think his name is Tom Maddox. Okay. Uh, who I believe wrote... Uh, what was that movie with Keanu Reeves from the 90s that was sort of cyberpunk? Oh, Johnny Mnemonic. Johnny Mnemonic. Okay. I I believe he wrote the script for Johnny Mnemonic. Correct me. You know, someone out there, correct me if I'm wrong. Leave a comment at tuninginshow.com. But, uh, you know, so he worked with him, uh, he actually writes a script in the, I think either the next season or the seventh season of the show that deals sort okay. of with virtual reality. So you, you'll kind okay, of get a cool. wish. And I say kind of because it's not a very good. Episode, no, and that, we'll, that 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 that's we'll, fine. We'll, we'll get to that then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I actually it's un, it's interesting that you like the VR stuff in this episode because because I think it's the weakest part of Kill Switch. I. I get what the show is trying yeah. to do with it, but I don't find that sort of like straight buxom nurse imagery no. very appealing or interesting. And it feels very on the nose. And of course, The X-Files is a show that is not afraid of being on the nose, but it also just wastes a lot of screen no, time. No, no, it's true. And I think that's my primary problem with Switch is that it's very well written, it's very well constructed, it's very well plotted until it's not. And it kinda of feels like it kinda of feels like William Gibson and Tom Maddox came up with about thirty minutes of plot, but then they realized they were writing for a forty five minute time slot.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean this whole I feel like what clutters this episode is the whole we're uploading our brains and we're gonna be together forever and the net plot of that. Like that I think muddies the waters in a bit and is the part of the episode that i'm not quite sure about
0: yeah because it really muddies the waters from you know is it is it morally right is it morally justifiable to to create an artificial intelligence that becomes sentient you know is it is it morally justifiable to to kill it is it actually a threat this is just Uh, trying
1: to protect itself they are hunting a wild animal who is fighting back in self-defense to a degree
0: Right, and it kind of muddies the water to, okay, we are going to put ourselves into the bodies of the creature we are, like, hunting or something, and it's just, it, it turns it from an interesting look at, at what AI would mean or what AI would indicate for, for the future into a, into a sort of, like, pre-singularity thing, Yeah, and it's not very well thought out in the episode. It's just kind of dropped in there.
1: The twist that I thought that the episode was going to go for was that... Okay, actually, this guy uploaded himself, and he doesn't actually intend to live with her. He's just using her to get his brain uploaded to the computer and, now- and live forever, and he's killing her and the other guy to clean up the loose ends. I thought that was where they were going with that, especially when you see him, his desiccated body.
0: Yeah, and I I I I'm not really I'm never really sure what that desiccated body in the trailer is supposed to indicate. Like I it was he also trying to kill it and then he got lowered in like Mulder did? Uh was he trying to upload his consciousness into something? Why would he be doing it there? I I don't know. And there's a <laughs> there's a level to which I'm I'm not sure if I'm understanding it or if the script is just a little bit confused as to what kind of point it's trying to make. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, if not – where is that guy's consciousness? Is he fully just dead or is it on the net? I don't know. I'm not sure if the script quite cares enough to tell us. It's, it's, it's a shocking and horrifying image when you see it and especially when you see Mulder in the same situation and know that – you know this is what he's his, this is what he's in danger of happening to him but yeah as a plot element it was just kind of there
0: i i think that that, that probably the primary problem with this script is now that i just realized it is that the the ai is not a character yeah. in the episode and i think the ai needs to be a character in the episode i mean we we do get scenes of the ai talking to people we do get scenes of people talking about the ai but I think it would have been interesting if Mulder or Scully actually had a conversation yeah. with it. Or if, you know, whatever. I mean, I can come up with, with a with a thousand theories. But, you know, I, I fundamentally don't really understand what the AI wants. And that kind of makes the episode kind of fall apart a little bit because you don't have as much of that driving force to the narrative. You know, the episode starts out very strong. It's almost like a train that's barreling through a station. And And then it just kind of like stops for a while and and it's never really clear to me how intentional that is.
1: yeah, I mean, it's very easy to have them have a conversation with the AI in Mulder's dream VR world. He meets somebody and you know he meets a guest star that's going to be talking in the voice of the AI. But when you have that point, then uh then you really do have a lot of sympathy for the AI then. Because that does right. incarnate. It, it's almost as if, and oh my god, can you see the version of this episode where the AI takes the form of Samantha? But this is me writing fanfic again. Um, <laughs> and well,
0: no, but I, but I, but I think your point is well taken, though, because you know, I, I, I want the AI to be sympathetic. I think, in, in, in you know, I think what William Gibson is is. I, again, I don't know that much about William Gibson. I am only taking this from half remembered half remembrances of of Neuromancer from fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, and this episode. But you know, he seems like someone who is very interested in you know thinking about and writing about the the real influences of this sort of you know. I, I guess we would call it. Uh, I don't know what we would call it now, but there's a term for it that's escaping me. But but this kind of like you know big sky cloud computing, you know we're all being followed, we're all being watched, uh, you know kind of coupled with uh, artificial intelligence. The fact that the machines that are watching us are actually watching us, right? And I don't know what his point of view is about that. He seems to think it's a bad thing. He he, it, it seems to be trading on some sort of like instinctual revulsion at the idea of artificial intelligence and it's not one that i share i i, I yeah. actually find the idea that artificial intelligence would by its very definition want to exterminate or hurt humanity and i also think that this episode is is sidestepping that question a little bit because of course the ai is only acting out in self-defense yeah But the episode doesn't really engage with that idea ever, and I I, I think it's a little bit of a failing there.
1: Yeah, um, Invisible Goth, or whatever her name is, Esther, um, she doesn't seem to think it's a possibility that this AI, which in a very real degree is her daughter, uh, is able to be reasoned with. That they can't... why do they decide that the AI is a threat and needs to be shut down? Why? I don't remember that part of the episode. I feel like she vaguely explained it, but basically the plot seems to be kicked off by the, – they decide that this thing is too dangerous. They create a kill switch, and then fearing for its life, it begins to kill them. Uh, why do they create – Which is – Yeah, and I, – I understand that. I understand the AI fearing this, but – they don't really talk about why they make the kill switch.
0: Right, right. I, I, I'm with you, and I, I, I frankly don't think there was a reason given. I I, I think the idea is that uh, David and Esther and, and, and um, Donald all kind of like were working together to, to kill this thing because it's a priori bad. I, I don't know. Yeah, and, it seems and, they
1: just got too freaked about what they had done, and because they realize they are in a world where AI will become be- evil uh, – they decided to create the switch to kill it just in case and yeah
0: but i guess in a certain sense though i mean yes the the artificial intelligence did get out in the wild and it did become much more powerful or much more all-knowing than they had anticipated and i think that an artificial intelligence that can take control of an orbital weapons platform is dangerous, and certainly, I don't think that an artificial intelligence, or frankly, any one person, should have control over those things. Um, but what what really is kind of you know disappointing about it is that I, I can also see the episode not really critically engaging with the idea that this group of people really failed the artificial intelligence, mm. didn't really teach the artificial intelligence, the the sanctity of life and, you know, morality and all of these kind of things. They they were they were treating it like a puppy that they were abusing and then the puppy grows up
1: to be a dog and bites you and you blame the dog. I mean this is the plot of Frankenstein, which the this very season of the X-Files has made us think about uh, somebody creates life, fears for what its creation did, does, abandons it, tries to destroy it. I mean, that is the plot of Frankenstein. The postmodern Prometheus made us rethink that and left us with the... A very strong reminder that Victor Frankenstein's sin is the abandonment of his his child. And now we have an episode in which the goal of the character is is to kill the child, and we feel, hey, happy ending when that's happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's almost like an inversion of the Frankenstein monster myth where the monster's actually a bad guy. And... I don't know that the episode really justifies yeah. that, and, and 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 I mean, frankly, like I don't like Esther very much, you know. And I think that you know we don't see uh, yeah. Donald. We see Donald very briefly at the beginning of the episode, and he's like you know feverishly typing and being semi rude to a guy who's making you know less than minimum wage, uh, <laughs> which is always a good way to endear you know people to me, um, and then. He dies, right, in a hail of gunfire. We never really uh, uh, hear from David. The only way we ever hear from him is through Esther, a picture, and then his dead body in the trailer. And, you know, Esther's the one that we spend the most time with. And she's got this sort of, like, you know, goth girl, cyberpunk, I'm too cool for school thing going on for a while.
1: And that's very... We are watching this as a 35-year-old gay man in the year 2018. If we were straight 16-year-olds in 1998, we might have a slightly different view of her, but she looks like a clown.
0: But again, though, isn't that a problem that I think maybe you didn't even realize that the episode is treating her as an object?
1: No, it's true. Um, I'm – in a very real way, she's a plot device. So, yes, she is treated as an object, which is not – something limited to her in i mean that, that that is a facet of gibson though i don't think he really is interested in character no um, and yeah. so who's going to come off as strong characters in this episode well Mulder and scully because we've had them for five seasons the lone gunman because they are very they, they are very much eccentric supporting characters the all of those five actors know their characters very well have very great chemistry together, are good at their jobs, and so they are going to shine, and everybody else around them is just going to be very flat. I mean, I, Esther yeah. doesn't even tell us really anything about what David was like. It's not as if she has a bit where she's saying, oh, well... You know, working late nights and he was, you know, our ideas and we just, you know, and we got to know each other. Like, all she just says is, yes, we fell in love and we were going to upload our brains. That's all we know about him.
0: That is true. Yeah. I mean, I think in a large, a large part of that is just it doesn't really matter who these yeah. people are, which, you know, is fair. Uh, but that's not really why I watch the X-Files.
1: Yeah. At the, again, the villains, the secondary characters, they don't have – personalities, the, and and so they are going to look very weird against the, and again, reading Gibson, it works. It is a very weirdly alienating kind of experience reading him. The characters are very inscrutable, and it adds to his general feeling of paranoia about alienation by technology, all of those things. Uh, There is a bit of themes of, are we sacrificing human community for the cold technology, blah, 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 and all of that. Um, and so it doesn't – it's not surprising that his characters feel very insect-like in that way.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Well, maybe the last thing to, to talk about before I move on to, to Bad Blood, because I I feel like there's a lot to talk about with Bad Blood is uh, the Lone Gunman and the role of the yeah. Lone Gunman in this episode. So you started out this podcast kind of talking about how this is a really important episode for, for the Lone Gunman, and I'm I'm curious to ask you why you think that. Not important,
1: but no, it I, I mean, like, they... I buy this episode because of those characters, because they are... I mean, this is an episode which is partially based on the early days of computing being, uh having already passed into legend. Uh, there is certainly when they're talking about Donald at the beginning, uh, they're talking about the early PC era, uh, late seventies, early eighties around them. And, uh, basically Donald is mentioned in the same breath as Bill Gates and Steve Wozniak and all of these, and Steve Jobs and all of that. Um, I think it's funny that in 1998 these are legendary times already but the lone gunmen are oh yeah c- certainly of that era um if they didn't directly participate in any of the interesting times they were certainly beneficiaries of all of that they were certainly fascinated by all of that and I don't know it's a time that I find very interesting um it's certainly an exciting time in which everything felt like there are a lot of possibilities, and I'd say around around the time of the airing of this episode was another time where it felt like technology is really going somewhere. This is the time where the internet was beginning to become really popularized, where it became mm-hmm. to be seen in homes. A few years – we are still a few years later from quote-unquote everybody having the internet, but this is around the tipping point. Uh, the Matrix is going to come out about a year later.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, because it came out in 99. Yeah. Right,
1: yeah. Um, Part of the reason that I feel that – part, and part of the reason this episode may feel a little light is I might be in my mind comparing it to The Matrix, which in terms of production quality and all of that – I know you can't mention the two in the same breath. They are working on astoundingly different budgets and all of that. But, um, yeah, that is true for sure. Either way that, that is the times in which this episode is being made. And it is, again, this is, it's really funny talking about shows around this time, Voyager being as well, because this is the time in my life that I was really, I was in high school around this time. I was uh, as a kind of nerdy guy, I was paying attention to this kind of stuff. I was interested in mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And it is weird to be seeing this again. I don't know.
0: No, I agree. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there and I, I don't know that we want to spend a ton of time on it because we could probably do an entire podcast about it. But I, I think there's a there's a couple things to tease out there. I think that number one, uh, specifically about the lone gunman, it, it, I think that they really, um, they really relate to to David more than the other sort of luminaries of that early era of of computer uh, uh technology and computer, yeah. the computer industry because they very explicitly say that like he turned down a lot of money to, to yeah. sort of like sell his company or build his company or whatever and sort of just went off into the wilderness. And they explicitly say like he was not a capitalist. And yeah. I think that kind of the lone gunmen are sympathetic to him and not to Steve Jobs, for instance, who, interestingly enough, was about a year, um, took over, re, you know, retook over Apple, I think, in 1996 or 1997. Mm. So the year or two after that, or before this. Uh, so Steve Jobs sort of was in the wilderness for 10 years and then went back to Apple and started to become a huge capitalist again. Um, that that Steve Jobs is sort of the epitome, or Bill Gates is sort of the epitome yeah. of the, the capitalist, and and this character is the epitome of the of the non capitalist. I I don't know exactly what his you know political philosophy is, but well, there was the they, yeah they yeah like they you know the lone gunmen respond to that because they also view themselves as as not subscribing to capitalist ideals about you should use your skills and you should use your knowledge to, to make as much money as possible and, and really like destroy the planet. Um, that was, and, and there's an, there's an idealism to that, which I really appreciate.
1: Yeah. That was a theme that was very explicitly talked about in ghost in the machine. I think they phrased it as the, uh, scruffy and the clean programmers or something mm-hmm. like it, something like that. And it, the lone gunman and Donald are certainly on the scruffy side of the equation equation of the technology for its own sake and scientific progress because this can be done and this is interesting and let's see how far we can take this and uh, obviously the capitalism being how can we monetize this how can we make this and that is a very interesting theme in Silicon Valley Uh, it's certainly something when people are talking about all of the Tech bros these days and the people making bodega apps—that's the capitalism coming through. Well, I think
0: in a very real way, you know, the tech industry was 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 really the the template was set based on you know what Bill Gates did, what yeah. um, what Steve Jobs did, what you know a lot of these these companies did, and a lot of these sort of luminaries did. And so that's kind of how it did. I mean, if if so, if Steve Wozniak ran Apple instead of Steve Jobs, we'd be in a very different world. Um, yeah, but at the same I,
1: time, Steve Wozniak would not have done very well to keep Apple running because, again, he's not a businessman. Steve Jobs is. To,
0: to be fair, Steve
1: Jobs didn't the first time either. Yeah, so. fair and and that is fair, that is fair enough. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, you know, we we should probably cut this short because we could ramble about this for for hours. But I I do want to mention one other thing, which is not related to the X Files. But uh, if anyone out there listening is actually sort of interested in what we've been talking about for the past five minutes or so, there is a book I read um, a few years ago. I think it came out about 10 years ago called What the Dormouse Said How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. Fascinating book. And I think it makes a strong argument that. they, they essentially sold out their own beliefs. Um, no, I'd be of interested. Sort of pe- yeah. All those sort of, you know, tech luminaries of the sixties and seventies were really sort of like, you know, Silicon Valley was, was not in San Francisco, but it was part of the counterculture. It was in California really influenced by, yeah. um, the counterculture and, you know, talking about how a lot of them like took LSD a lot and all these kind of stuff and whole earth uh, catalog and all that. Right, right. And, you know, it's that, I mean, wrap it back around to Stephen King, you know, what's his, uh, what's mm. that line he, he always quote about the, the baby boomers, which Stephen King wrote, you know, we, we could have had world peace, but we settled for the home shopping yeah. network or something like that. Yeah, that's and it. I think that that's, that's a theme here, definitely. So if you're interested in that, that's a, that's
1: a book to check out. I will check that out because that sounds really interesting.
0: All right, well, let's move on to Bad Blood, but before we do that, I do just want to take a quick opportunity to uh, be a little capitalist and remind you (laughs) that this podcast is listener supported. Uh, We do rely on your donations each and every month to continue to bring this podcast to you. If you would like to do so, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, check out our reward tiers, and give now.
1: Do you remember how I said we end up talking about Amundajira a lot? I do. I'm going to talk about El Mundo during Bad Blood Talk. Like,
0: Okay, I- I'm, I'm ready.
1: Because here we have another episode in the Bucket of X-Files episode that is really concerned with authorship and who tells a story and what the story is from that perspective. Again, something that El Mundo does kind of shittily, but uh, – this is not quite a Rashomon episode, it uh, but it does has does have some elements because we do hear Scully's and Mulder's takes on the same thing. Uh but I think what this episode is this episode is not interested in how the plots differ because their plots are both basically telling the same exact thing, but. This episode is fascinating for its glimpse into how Mulder and Scully see each other and how that yeah. is not exactly the most positive portrayal. They are, of course, in an extraordinarily st- uh, stressful situation when they are telling their stories, and they have reasons to be a little pissed at each other. But both of them feel the other is bringing them down a little bit, and I think that's really interesting.
0: I I agree with that, but I I, I, I would – I would phrase it a little differently. I think that you know this episode is fascinating to me because, and I'm never really sure to to what degree I think Vince Gilligan is really. I, I don't know that I like this version of, of Mulder and Scully, mm. frankly. Uh, Mulder and Scully have always been the sort of characters that that can change to to fit the, yeah. the facts and to fit the the writer that is writing them and. I, I don't know that you can square this version of Mulder and Scully with the version of Mulder and Scully from, say, Memento Mori or the entire yeah. Scully has cancer arc. They, these are two people that that very clearly like each other and very clearly care deeply about each other, um, and even like each other. And and I think Bad Blood makes it clear that I I think that this is a very very meta episode that honestly doesn't really have a whole lot to do with how Mulder and Scully if you kind of view them as actual people view each other but how Vince Gilligan and i think by definition the rest of the regular writing staff of the X-Files kind of views their creations of these characters how they've treated them how they
1: how they yeah. used
0: them and i think how
1: they failed them as well i think that's fair um because in some ways this feels like It's stuff that never again resolved, right? If this had been... If this episode had come right before never again... So we have these... They think of each other kind of nastily at some points. Mulder feels that Scully is always complaining and doesn't really believe in what he's doing, and Scully feels like Mulder is telling her only half the story and making her go off on these really weird things, and then you have never again and paper hearts which directly deal with um Mulder explicitly calling Scully out and saying you don't really believe in what I've said and Scully saying you don't take me seriously I'm just kind of your sidekick when I'm your partner the the episode the issues in this particular episode have kind of been resolved now of course people's Issues with each other do crop up again and again in different permutations. Something that you think is solved could crop up again. That is fair. And again, Mulder just killed somebody and they were in a hearing to make sure that – uh, it, it, they're, they're in an internal review hearing. They could be thinking it's the other person's fault in a way, and Mulder is wishing Scully would back him up. Scully is wishing Mulder wouldn't go off half-cocked like this. Again, I can. there are reasons in episode for them to think this bitterly of each other, but I think you're right. This is the writing staff kind of poking fun in a very sharp way at... At the at their their characters' flaws,
0: yeah, I think so, and and not really even their characters' flaws, but I I I think the ways in which the writers have have sort of developed these characters, because you know, certainly Mulder and Scully in the first two three seasons of the show. Uh, had a lot of these, these issues. And I think they were falling into some patterns and I think the writers were falling into some patterns with these characters and, you know, it took, it took writers like Darren Morgan, for instance, or, you know, some other people to, to sort of like go into this a little more and, and make this subtext text in a way and, and to really actually examine how they would feel about this. And I, I, you know, we we got a comment, uh, you know, about a month ago or so, maybe two months ago. At this point, it's it's all bleeding together. Um, welcome to year two of Trump's America. <laughs> that God, it's only year two. <laughs> that you know he was he was talking about how the the rewatch of the X Files for him was essentially making him really dislike Mulder, which I can see, and I, I certainly think that that's an interesting. Uh, Take away from that, because I do think that Mulder as a character kind of exemplified by bad blood is is probably kind of a roll up of some of the worst elements of straight white maleness. Yeah. And um, I and I think that that's probably something that the show it it just kind of happened. I mean, we talked very early on when we first started covering The X-Files about how Chris Carter kind of really consciously wanted to not damsel Scully, you know, wanted to have her uh, save Mulder, wanted her to fight back, wanted her to physically, you know, yeah. save herself and all these kind of things. And the show has done that for sure. But the show has also put her in more gendered situations. And I, I mean, I've never really, you know, sat down and 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 figured out how many times Mulder's come to Scully's rescue and vice yeah, versa. Yeah. But but I would be, I would be shocked if Scully came to Mulder's rescue in the show more than. Mulder came to Scully's rescue and it really does feel to me like the 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 writing staff maybe maybe Vince Gilligan not necessarily Chris Carter is is really trying to critically engage with that and 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 maybe sort of like I don't know if they're trying to lean into the horribleness of Mulder or trying to comment you know comment on how straight white men will just not listen to women and will like say the exact same thing a woman just said 30 seconds ago and act like they didn't even hear it. I mean, these are real things that happen all the time. Um, I'm not sure, but I, but I think it's, it's an interesting episode and it certainly leaves a lot of room for interpretation.
1: This is very much obviously in the Darren Morgan vein. And I know that was a big facet of his episodes again in, uh, a Humbug, for example, we are in a situation in which Mulder represents as much establishment as you can get and he is very much an outsider and nobody quite trusts him for that because he is the man in a way. And I'm not sure Morgan's criticism in that way was as damning as it might have been. And certainly I don't think the – like I don't think that's part of the point of Jose Chung's, for example, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that is certainly brought into the mix and I – I mean I'm, I – it's it's half gone into in the case of Small Potatoes, for example, where one of the major themes of that is that you know, Mulder is a handsome, straight, white guy in his 30s, he can literally do whatever the fuck he wants. Uh, and obviously the um, the Darren Morgan character uh, it seems to think that he could be doing such more with that. But basically, yeah, it, 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 if I had what you had, there would be nothing stopping me, and what you're doing is this. Um, I mean, The X-Files is in a way a... I'm sure you could draw a continuity into for example, the House era of television and where you have somebody who is a genius and just a complete fucking prick asshole, but it's accepted because he is so good at his job and, you know, his personal frictions are just treated as television drama. Two shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, which, mis fandom aside, are are intended to be saying, here is the end result of that, somebody who is so horrible that he destroys everybody he loves who is close to Mm -hmm. him. Um, Mulder isn't, I don't think, obviously Mulder is is not as bad as Walter White, uh, but there is a continuity there, and the show is a little, again, it's not that it's not willing to criticize that, but this is an era in which that doesn't even come up in anyone's mind. I think we simply are more primed to be mistrustful of straight white men. And given that they elected Trump, I don't see why we should not be.
0: Yeah.
1: No, I I, I agree with all that. I mean there's a lot to unpack there, but
0: you know, I really do think that you're you're right that the X-Files and and by definition, a lot of the other shows you mentioned. Um, I think Breaking Bad is is very much and and you know, hey, Breaking Bad, written by Vince Gilligan, the author of this oh, yeah, episode. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Um, it very much is a repudiation of of sort of toxic, you know, white male masculinity and toxic masculinity more generally. And and the ways in which both men use that use their masculinity in order to sort of like uh, 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 you know, use their privilege to sort of bludgeon their way through the world and and also the ways in which the world bludgeons itself onto men. I mean, let's not forget that, uh, you know, small children, small men do not come out of the womb this way. You know, th- this is expected yeah. of the culture. I, one of my favorite stories is like I sprained my ankle when I was like 12 or 13 years old and You know, if you've ever sprained your ankle, it fucking hurts and you can't really walk on it. And you know, I'm pretty much like a kid still. And I remember having an uncle who was there at the time and he was like, Oh, walk it off, walk it off. And I'm like, walk it off? My ankle fucking hurts. Like what it you know, and and it but it's that kind of thing that that crops up again and again when, when you're a male a man growing up in this culture. And So I think that in terms of, you know, to wrap this back around to to Mulder, I don't think Mulder's a bad guy. And I don't even find Mulder that that objectionable, really. I think that he is a typical white cis man of his time. And if he doesn't always take Scully completely seriously, and I, I think certainly that is the case. I am not arguing that he doesn't. Uh, I think Scully gives as good as she gets. And the, the dynamic that they have is is so singular that it makes it difficult to just sort of throw up your hands and throw Mulder into that same category of Walter White or
1: House or whoever. Well, a couple things to, uh, to add to – well, a couple things to talk on that. I, number one with Scully giving as good as she gets, I – the very beginning of this episode when they're talking in Mulder's – in the office, in the basement, and they're talking about the review, it's very bantery. It's some of the quickest-paced dialogue that I think they've had on this show, and in a way it's coming out of nineteen thirty screwball romantic comedy, which – uh, that kind of banter dialogue depends on two characters who are equal to each other. In, oh, yeah. And I find that to be the episode going out of its way to say we need to give Mulder and Scully equal, equal validity in their views of each other. Because if this episode is all about critiquing Mulder, it's not going to work. If it's all about critiquing Scully, it's not going to work. The two of the... Uh, we need to address... Because obviously, with Scully, there is the, you know, it's, what do you mean it's aliens? You know, I've just been on this show for five seasons, but I don't believe in aliens kind of running characterization with her. That she never, again, in practice, this is Scully needing evidence in order to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it's something. If there's even a 1% chance it could be something, it's probably something mundane. It could probably be that, and more importantly, people who are not Scully are not going to believe it at all. Um, right. Again, that's a characterization of Scully, but this episode is de- dealing with that. Um, I- yeah, I
0: mean, I'm I'm with you. I think that—I mean, certainly Mulder has always been the type of character to just sort of go off half-cocked and not really think about what he's doing or the ramifications of his actions or how he's going to get out of something. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think back to even a very early episode when he just decided to go scaling the fence at that Air Force base. Yeah. and you're like, what What is he doing? How does he think he's going to get away with this? And of course, he's going to get away with it because he's a he's a white dude who's an FBI agent. Um, but the show, of course, was never was not there yet. I mean, that was not that that was implicit more because that's the culture we live in, not because the show was trying to make any sort of like actual point about that or a sort of a, a you know a cogent point but i i mean i want to talk also about the the ways in which bad blood uses the the dual narratives of these like recollections of the events of the episode because you know if if we it, this is also an episode like jose chung's from outer space that is really kind of you know dealing a lot with the the ways in which television tells its story and 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 how things are different or not and you know if we take uh the x files as filmed, as sort of like the gospel of what actually happened. Of course, how Mulder and Scully are acting to each other in those recollections are not actually the truth of yeah. how they're interacting with each other. That's that's their recollection of what's going on. And you know, there's a lot of interesting there's a lot of interesting work being done right now about sort of emotional states and 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 memory recollection and and how the the sort of emotional state that you're in uh, will affect not only how you remember something, but but how the memory is actually created. And and in this episode plays around a lot with that, where, you know, Scully obviously feels a little put upon by Mulder. Mulder obviously feels a little straitjacketed by Scully. I don't think it's anything profound. I don't think that they're not able to work with each other. And I do think that they, they care about each other deeply, but in an episode like bad blood, where essentially Mulder just killed somebody and Mulder and Scully are having to essentially get their story straight their their, their, their emotions and tensions of course are running high and, and what is happening in Bad Blood is that the, those differences are being exaggerated.
1: Yeah, even something as simple as the autopsy, for example. Uh, Scully has done an intensive autopsy. She has found literally nothing. As far as she's concerned, it was a waste of time. And she's gotten home. She's hungry. She just wants to sit back and enjoy her magic fingers. And then suddenly Mulder's all, you have to do this. And... Of course, she's going to view it as, I just want to sit down. I have to do that again and find nothing again, and it's going to be another few hours again, and it's gross. And Mulder is, of course, going to view it as, as, this is Scully not wanting to do something again, and she just doesn't believe anything I think is important again. And in reality, it's just... She has to do a job. She's having a long day. She signed up for a long days when she joined the FBI. Mulder understands that this is not something she's thrilled to do. That's as far as it goes. Of course, when they're thinking about it, it's going to be much more heightened. I mean, you have a bad day at work. It may be nothing, but it's going to feel very big to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a way in which you can't put that into context sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, and and, and and to be clear, I mean, I I, I think this is something that, that Mulder does a lot. You know, yeah. I think that the show has always worked on the shortcutting that that people in, um you know, longstanding interpersonal relationships can do. But, for example, Mulder will tell very basically Mulder will usually tell Scully what to do and Scully very rarely will tell Mulder what yeah. to do. And is Mulder her boss? Is Mulder her supervisor? I don't know. Shrug your shoulders. Like, is he just doing this because he feels entitled to to order around uh, a you know a, a pretty white lady? I really don't know. Um, I I, I think maybe the uncharitable interpretation of that is yes. Uh, I think the the in-universe charitable explanation of that is that Mulder feels much more of a sense of ownership over the Exiles, and that he views Scully as being assigned to them and so that she is going to do the work that he thinks is important.
1: Again, that was something that was addressed in Never Again. It was kind of implied that especially at first – Sure. Mulder's It makes sense for Mulder to say, all right, we're taking this case. We're taking that case because it is the department he's been working in for a while. And yeah, for the first year, maybe that's just how it's going to go. And then they settle into that routine. And it's only after she's – she feels at home and is comfortable with that and has risked her life for the X-Files and is dealt with that that she's realizing, why am I not taking the lead on any of this? By this point – I'm just as experienced, more or less.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, I I think that's right. And I also think that still Mulder is doing it, though. You know, he still just says, oh, do this, do that. She never really asked for an explanation, but when she wants an explanation, she's never even really given one. And that's what's so interesting. I mean, a lot of what Bad Blood is doing, of course, is playing around with our expectations of how an X-Files episode goes. And I do think that that, Scene where Mulder just bursts into her hotel room, jumps on her bed, you know, like uses her magic fingers, and she's like, "Why? I just, got <laughs> pizza. I don't, you know, I don't want to blah blah blah." And, and and that happens a lot, and of course, it's it's played broadly for comedic effect, but but the emotional resonances of that are really just on the screen, right
1: in that scene. And we also need to think about again from from Scully's perspective. Mulder bursts in; he's covered in mud. He says, "I'm not going to tell you what this is," and lies down on her bed. What we know happened is that Mulder was dragged by this truck, by this RV. He's filthy. He's probably hurting a bit. He's gone through a very mortifying, you know, stunt, essentially. And let me sit down for a couple of minutes is what it's going from here. He's not telling her because he's embarrassed about it, but she's viewing it again as another Mulder's just not telling me what I need to know
0: right right yeah and also i think there's a little bit of embarrassment on part. yeah yeah yeah. he probably feels embarrassed that he couldn't actually stop the rv until it ran out of gas yeah what it, uh, he
1: he doesn't need at the end of the day especially if he views scully as somebody who is being kind of snarky to him the entire time he's not going to give her something like i got dragged by an rv through the mud like that that that's just asking for her to say something whether or not yeah. not no matter what version of scully we have she's gonna have something very dry to say about that.
0: Well I think that, you know, to, to kind of change the subject a little bit, I I I do think that there there's another there's another element to this episode, which is that you know, Mulder and Scully a lot of the time don't really know how to talk to each other. And you know, this this is something where if they just clearly communicated to each yeah. other what they were thinking and what they needed and maybe everything would have been fine. But they don't have that kind of relationship. And I, I also think it's difficult for people to do that. I mean, I, yeah. I there's a there's a real sort of cultural joke about people that have been in too much therapy. But, you know, like, I think that's also a real thing. And this episode makes it very clear, though, that they still do have each other's back. I mean, at the end of the day, oh, they're yeah. doing this because... Scully doesn't want to see Mulder go to prison and neither does Mulder want to see Scully go to prison.
1: Yeah, Scully does recognize – Scully does connect the dots, realize that the pizza is drugged and rushes in and saves Mulder. I mean she does uh, get that point. Um, I mean I I, I, I think to go to your point about they don't know how to communicate with each other, I'm thinking about at the beginning when he has his little slide presentation and – in both versions, he's talking about, well, there were all of these cows, and they, they've been exsanguinated, and the cows, and it's terrible. Oh, and a tourist was killed. And in both uh, scenarios, Scully saying, well, you could have begun with that, and it is true. If Mulder right. had gone up to Scully and said a tourist from New Jersey was found missing in this Town. There were holes in his neck. What's weird is that there were six cows that the same exact thing happened. Then that actually does sound like something. This is why I care about this. As he, yeah, he 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 does a really poor. Pre- he hasn't figured out how to sell it to Scully yet.
0: Well, and I yeah I agree with that. But I also think that the other the other part of this and what what is running all throughout Bad Blood and 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 again really all throughout the X Files is that. Mulder wants Scully to hear him, yeah. and Scully wants Mulder to hear her. And very rarely do they actually feel heard by the other person. And now they're, and, and it's also compounded, of course, by the fact that this is a professional relationship, but they also have a yeah. very personal relationship. But. I you know, that that's kind of the charitable interpretation because, you know, we started out talking about bad blood, about sort of like Mulder's as a stand-in for, for toxic masculinity. And, you know, I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, I like I think there are no. elements to that, sure, but at the end of the day, I do think that Mulder is a fundamentally decent guy who just hasn't examined his own privilege to to use the you know the term of of twenty eighteen. But still has feelings, wants to be heard, and Scully yeah. also feels the same way. I mean, this just seems like two people that can't communicate with each other and they just keep yelling at each other instead.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I guess... Yeah, no, cause because no, it's not like Mulder is doing anything maliciously. I think part of the funny implication of this episode is uh, when Mulder is... Giving when Mulder is telling his story, he drones on and on about like these bits of vampire lore that he's not doing in Scully's scenario, and part of that i'm I'm assuming is Scully kind of tunes out part of the his part of the folklore lessons every time because sure. she doesn't really care he'll that's Mulder's department he'll figure out what it is she's letting him talk it out out loud and In a way, Mulder is either giving too little information or too much information. He he really doesn't understand the happy medium that she kind of needs, and I – again, this is a failing on both sides. He's telling her a little too much or just kind of doing something without her, and she isn't really – I don't know, because it's not necessarily, like, her fault that she isn't listening to what he's saying. But um, she could also understand that, again, he's showing me six cows that have been exsanguinated. This is leading to a point.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, I I mean, I do think that, that it is interesting in the ways in which the episode... Also, I mean, Mulder and Scully very easily could make themselves out to be faultless in their own version yeah. of the story, and, and and I think the episode very smartly uh, doesn't do that. You know, Scully also comes across sometimes in her own narrative as a little bit um, dismissive, and Mulder comes across in his own narrative as kind of a thoughtless jerk sometimes. I mean, one of my—I think my absolute favorite character beat in this episode is— in Mulder's recollection of the events of the episode, when he's in Scully's hotel room paying for that pizza, he gives the guy a really, really, really yeah. bad tip.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think two cents, isn't it? Like, it's like 12 Yeah, like, it's not a... even
0: a tip. It's an insult. <laughs> and I, I, I love that so much because it does indicate that the, the episode is, is smarter not to make them out to be paragons of their own story.
1: Yeah. Although I do love the point where Scully is, you know, with, where Luke Sheriff Luke Wilson is you know, on the same length as her and she's going all these brilliant, he's just making these moon eyes over how smart she is. Yeah, and I mean, well, you
0: know, leaving aside the fact that, that Sheriff Luke Wilson, bad teeth or no bad teeth, I, I would still hit that. Um uh, uh- we and I like talking about the... the fact that it was vampires. Like, does that matter at all? I, I, I yeah. think I, I tend to think not. But
1: no, I don't think it does matter. When, because this episode is using vampires as a gimmick for this story, and also as a as a pretty easy way of letting Mulder kill someone and have to be on the hook for killing someone, but not actually have him kill somebody.
0: True. True. Yeah, that, that would be pretty difficult to... I, even Mulder, I think, would get in trouble for, for murdering someone without cause.
1: <laughs> Whether or not they are a vampire, it's true, yeah. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I liked this episode very much. Um. I, 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 I think it's... Because this is very much not... The typical notion of vampires, we assume they are Twilight-style vegetarian vampires, by because they're just eating cattle and stuff, and they don't show any real interest in hurting people. Again, the Sandlot kid does, and he's very much. Uh, er- 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 if Sheriff Luke Wilson represents the town, they kind of view. Uh, Sandlock kid is the village idiot and he's doing something terrible and he just need, we will handle this don't worry mm-hmm. about it and at the end they've obviously gone deeper underground but as far as vampires go they seem to be able to be fine out in daylight they eat pizza they they just happen to be immortal and have green eyes.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And and I mean, to your point as well, uh, Sheriff Luke Wilson does drug Scully, but he doesn't drug Scully to kill her. He yeah. just drugs her because that gives him time to get away. Yeah,
1: exactly. It, it just gets her out of the way for a couple hours, yeah. and then they just run away. She, has, she experiences no harm from this.
0: All right, well, I think that's it for bad blood. I'm going to go get myself some pizza because it's past my dinner time. Oh. But before I do that, I do just want to say... That, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes of The X-Files we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode at tuninginshow.com. As we said earlier, we do have a Patreon. It supports our podcasting endeavors. Please do go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Check it out. One thing you might be interested in is our $5 a month reward tier, which gives you one extra patrons-only podcast per month. There's a lot of them out there. We've been doing it for over two years now. So that would give you a lot of listening enjoyment. Patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Tuning In Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for tuning in. It is a very good way to get new fans. All right, next week we're going to be talking about Patient X and the red and the black.
1: The Mac Why do you?